Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Ty Smith. Ty is the founder and CEO of ComSafe AI, a technology company that helps organizations get ahead of threats and violence in the workplace before they happen. Before his career in technology, Ty served for over 20 years in the Navy, including 15 years as a Navy SEAL. Ty, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, Darren. Well, Ty, take me back to your upbringing. So what was little Ty about? What were you interested in? What were those things that were that excited you in your life? Yeah, I think when I was young, I was a, a normal dude in that I, I always had this really rough side of me. But I went through a, a very long period of time during my adolescence where I got into a street fight with a kid uh, that happens a lot growing up in a place like East St. Louis, Illinois. And to be honest with you, I, I, I kind of got my, my backside handed to me and just totally destroyed my confidence. And I think that not having a dad at home uh, just sort of fed that because I didn't have that male figure to go to and be like, hey, what does this mean? How do I recover from this? Like, any of that. So I was kind of dealing with it on my own. And so I found myself, believe it or not, as a kid that was just growing up being bullied by others, I think all the way up until I was a freshman in high school. Uh, and that came to a very violent and abrupt halt uh, with a situation that took place when I was in high school. And the only thing I think that that really, there were several things that saved me growing up in a place like East St. Louis. It was first and foremost, my mom was a police officer. So it was very difficult for me to be the kind of kid to go out and get in trouble. I was also the oldest of five kids and my mom was a single mom most of that time. So when she would be out working 17, 18 hour shifts as a police officer in crazy East St. Louis, Illinois, most of that time I would be at home helping to raise my siblings. And so that kept me out of trouble too. But also I just, I had a phenomenal family uh, and we didn't have a lot at all. We, we were poor, just like most families growing up in East St. Louis, but we were really wealthy on love and, and servant leadership. And so those things kept me out of trouble. And when I was 12 years old, I saw the old movie Navy Seals with Charlie Sheen. And that was really what, what hooked me at that point, I knew I was going to grow up and join the Navy. I knew in my heart I was going to be a Navy SEAL someday. Unfortunately, I held on to that dream. And when I graduated high school, I knew I didn't want to sit around East St. Louis. I, I knew that there were very few options for me. I was already seeing some of my friends die. I was already seeing some of my friends go to prison at an early age. And, and I didn't want to have anything to do with that. And so I joined the Navy with the clothes on my back and, and with a dream in my back pocket. And, and I got out of there uh, just as quickly as I could. And then lastly, one of the reasons why 
my family really supported that idea beyond what I've already talked about is, you know, coming out of an adolescence of, of being bullied and then coming into high school and, and finding that side of me that was, I had always known I was a protector inherently. I just didn't know how to do it. And then when I found that, when I was in high school, that was also leading me down a wrong path, a path of, of, I had had anger management issues. I was, you know, I went the exact opposite way where if, if someone said something to me that I didn't like, it was immediately, okay, boom, I found these, let's go. You know, after all of these years, and I remember my mom saying to me, son, if you don't find a way to control your emotions, to gain control of your temper, it's going to get you in a lot of trouble and I'm afraid it's going to hurt you. So when I came home and told them I was joining the Navy and, and I wanted to go out and see the world and build something for myself, my family was really supportive of that. And that started my journey. What a remarkable shift from the kid who's bullied to suddenly turning the tide there, but then also making another shift to joining the to Navy and the military. So what was that like? I know you served for about 20 years. What did you, what did you learn? What were some of those experiences that really shaped you and, and hardened you as a, as a really uh, a great leader that's being successful now in the technology space? Oh my gosh. There were so many experiences that, that shaped me into the leader that I am today, but I'll try to keep it brief. You know, for the first four and a half years, I was a military police officer and an Italian translator in Sardinia, Italy like horrible duty, right? It was, it was amazing. It was a dream. And this was, again, this was pre 9-11. This was pre Navy SEAL tie. I was a, a young 18, 19 year old punk kid, pretty much growing up maturing in Sardinia, Italy. And fortunately I, I had the, at least the maturity to, to understand the importance of language. And so I went out and I learned the Italian language and, and I, I really wanted to learn it. So within a year I was, I was pretty fluent. Uh, and I was being paid by the Navy to be an Italian linguist. And that was a really big deal because I found myself 99% of the time for almost five years, just surrounded by Italians. Most of my friends were Italians. I spoke Italian way more than I spoke English to the point where even today, I still dream in Italian a lot of nights. And so that opened me up to an entirely different culture that I knew nothing. I had never experienced anything like that. I was an 18-year-old kid when I got to Italy. I'd never seen or experienced anything like that. And that went a very long way toward my professional development, believe it or not, because I was working alongside the Italian Carabinieri, the, the military police in Italy, and they are the highest level of law enforcement in Italy. And so immediately I was given a great amount of responsibility. And I was given the opportunity to not just be mentored by American military personnel, but I found myself quickly being mentored by military professionals in the Italian military. And that it, it was just amazing. I was learning lessons from these men that had been in, in military law enforcement for a couple of decades already. And they had grown up in a completely different world, completely different world from what I was used to. And I was learning from those people. I was learning how to interact with other human beings. I was learning patience and empathy because you have to understand that stuff when you're working in a law enforcement role and you're dealing with drunken sailors on the Italian and the American side all the time. And so I took a lot of, of life lessons from that time and certainly was able to apply that to leadership 
in the SEAL teams once I got there. So I got the SEAL training five months after 9-11. A lot of people may not know this, but I was in an airplane flying into New York City on September 11, 2001. And fortunately, I wasn't in, in one of those planes that, that took down the towers and, and a part of the Pentagon. So when I got the SEAL training, everything in Naval Special Warfare had changed immediately. And you could feel it in the air when I got there. And by the time I got to a SEAL team, you can imagine everything was different. The entire special operations community had spun up for war and we were at war. And we were learning a lot of lessons very quickly, lessons that we weren't given the opportunity to learn um, over the previous couple of decades. And so I found myself in the SEAL teams quickly surrounded by some of the greatest leaders to this day that I, I believe I will ever have the opportunity to engage. And I learned a lot of very valuable lessons from those people. Again, empathy, humility, military bearing, not just the ability, but the need to put others before yourself, especially when you're responsible for the well-being of those people. And these are all lessons that I pulled from my military experience into ComSafe AI today, and it's how I lead the company. It drives how I interact with my employees. It drives how I hire new employees and the type of human beings that, that we bring into this company and the kind of culture that we're actually building in this company. And I think that's a part of why we're, we're successful today. Yeah, it's interesting just to pause on the military experience for a minute. I think the misperception is Navy SEALs as gladiators, but you mentioned words that I think most people would not associate with Navy SEALs. Well, first of all, the importance of language, but patience, empathy, humility, and what you mentioned, the words I'll use is servant leadership is such critical skills that you learned in the military and how you've applied that successfully in the tech space. Absolutely. You know, when it comes to leadership, in my opinion, if you're not practicing servant leadership, you're doing it wrong. And in the military, you're forced to do that, especially in the special operations community, because everything that we do is high risk. So if you are not always thinking about the safety and the well-being of the people that you're responsible for, you're wrong. And so I've simply pulled that tool out of my military experience and I've injected it into the culture of my company so that my employees are always hearing from me that, hey, we put people first, people before money every time. We treat one another equitably all the time. It doesn't matter who you are, what color you are, what's your sexual preference, what religion you practice. None of the above matters. Life and entrepreneurship, I found, is about building relationships with other people and being responsible for what you consider to be your tribe. Of course, I'm always going to try to better myself every day, but if I'm not working every day to actively grow the individuals that are within my tribe, then my opinion, I'm, I'm doing leadership the wrong way. And I learned that in the SEAL teams, and, and I'm really appreciative of that, especially when I look back on my last SEAL platoon in 2014, I, I led those boys through a very kinetic deployment in Afghanistan. And we were extremely successful, like record-breaking success for the Naval Special Warfare community. And it would have been so easy for those guys to simply peak with that tour because we were so successful 
And those guys are considered legends to this day in the SEAL teams. And I've moved on and transitioned. But what's really cool about that scenario is that every one of those guys are continuing to grow as a result of the example that I worked so hard to set for them. Things like you have to be more than just a Navy SEAL starting right now. You ha- I don't care if you're 15 years from retirement. You have to be more than a Navy SEAL. You have to work to be a good father. You have to work to be a good spouse. How are you growing yourself? Are you going to college in your free time? These are things that, that these guys were hearing me say all the time. And when I fast forward to now, all of those, those men have at least four-year college degrees. Most of them have gone on to complete advanced degrees. Some of them are running their own businesses now, just like me, and they still call me for guidance from time to time. And so I get to look at that group of individuals and go, wow, look at how advanced their lives are as a result of the lessons that I taught them. And and I'm not brilliant. These are lessons that I learned from my leadership when I was in their shoes. And so for me, that's what's most important. If you're not growing the people that you're responsible for, then you're doing leadership wrong. Yeah. I mean, I love that. So much richness there. You talk about just lifelong learning and constantly growing and getting better. Talk about mentorship and not just mentoring them when you're their senior supervisor within the, the teams, but also beyond that, you're, you're a sounding board for them, a resource for them as they go throughout their career, because obviously navigating, especially that transition is, is very challenging. And just to, I'd love to hear just your opinion, because I know the transition process is really challenging. What was that like? Obviously, you learned so much from working in the, the teams. What was that transition like for you? How did you end up in organizational management and ultimately in technology? Yeah, it was really difficult. The transition from the SEAL teams into just life as a civilian was difficult. And for me personally, the first, I'd say three years were extremely difficult to the point where, to be honest with you, they almost killed me. And on the surface, I was totally squared away. You know, I just completed my graduate studies at USC. I had stood up the business already. The business was finding success immediately. On the surface, everything with my transition seemed to be just fine. But but in my head and in my heart, I was in turmoil. I was going through that identity crisis that plenty of guys had warned me about. I was dealing with the fact that out of nowhere, six tours in Iraq and Afghanistan caught up with me like a thief in the night. And I just, it was, it felt almost as though I woke up one day and like, and the sun was just gone, you know, and, and it wouldn't come back. And it wasn't until I reached a a climax an almost fatal climax that I realized that, Hey, this, I don't care how strong you are. This isn't a storm that you can withstand on your own. And I took a knee, I raised my hand and I asked for help. And I let the people that, that I was asking for help know that I need help right now. I'm in trouble. And fortunately, I was able to get the help that I was asking for. And it started a long journey, a journey that I think I'm still on when it comes to transitioning out of that mindset, because the mindset you develop in the military, the culture that, that you're surrounded by in the military, it's so strong and it becomes your identity. Uh, No matter who you are, 
And it feels good when you're in the military. It, it, it's awesome. And it's not until you transition out of the military. And in my case, by at least a few years that you can look back on that, that time and go, hey, yeah, that was a really special time. And I loved every minute of it. But now that I'm removed, I can actually see why certain parts of that culture contributed to the trouble that I'm in right now. And it's the acknowledgement of those variables that should allow you to, to now have the ability to look forward and go, okay, I'm going to take all of this stuff with me and keep it because it's really good and it's going to serve me and, and my, my future community. But there's a whole lot of stuff, baggage that I need to start working right now to leave behind and acknowledging the fact that this isn't going to be an overnight fix. It's, this is going to take me a while, years, decades, even to learn how to leave some of this baggage behind. And again, I'm still in that transition, but I'm in a much better place today than I was even just two or three years ago. So yeah, that transition was very, very difficult for me. And, and I'm glad that I was able to get through it. But again, there's just no way I could have done it on my own. Yeah. I mean, by the way, that's incredibly courageous for you to, to acknowledge that and to take in the, and to realize that you did need help. But I think people can relate to this on, on so many levels, obviously the added pressure and weight of some of the things you experienced in, in war, but just, I think identity and creating that new identity for yourself, whether it's transitioning from a, an athlete, I know a member of friends who were incredible athletes growing up at a hard time, like the new adult version of themselves that no one cared how many home runs you hit or how many points you scored in a high school game or a college game or whatnot. But how did you actually get through that beyond asking for help? And I, I know you're still on the journey of doing that, but what were some of the things that you did to actually get through some of those challenging times? So I still lean to this day on, on things like mental health therapy. You know, I, I see a therapist once a week, at least to this day, because again, I, I've grown beyond now acknowledging the fact that, Hey, I, I need help dealing with this to the point where I'm, I'm like, that's all I do is seek help to deal with this at this point. So talking to a therapist, understanding that it's okay to hurt, it's okay to be abnormal for the rest of your life, because make no mistake, combat veterans are now abnormal for the rest of their lives. We are no longer normal human beings. And that's okay. It's really important for us to acknowledge that the fact that that is okay, but now we just have to learn how to, how do we continue life given the experiences that, that we endured throughout our military service, but also things that make me feel good doing things like hot yoga, doing things like Brazilian jujitsu, getting out in the ocean and going surfing once or twice a week as my schedule allows me to, the things that, that I know mean something to my heart and that allow me to balance and, and literally rinse off stress uh, in some particular cases. And just being really, really adamant about having that balance. And, and you're going to fail at it sometimes. To this day, I fail at it sometimes. I'm, I'm growing a rapidly growing technology company. As you can imagine, it, it requires a lot of my time, but it's still my responsibility to practice those those things that allow me to to relieve stress and find balance because if I become a casualty to stress in my own organization I'm not going to do my organization or my employees any good. And so 
just acknowledging that, hey, these are things that, yeah, I do them for fun, but make no mistake, I need to do these things in order to maintain balance. But I think most importantly, Darren, it's, it's going back to the first point of talking to people. The military does a really good job of creating quiet professionals out of us to the point that it becomes a detriment to your health, to your well-being, because you close off so much that you just stop talking to people. I got to the point where I just stopped talking to my wife. I stopped talking to my kids. I stopped talking to my friends. I, I would just flat out tell my family members that you don't even, you don't know who I am anymore. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm a completely different person. I am not the person I was when I left home at 17, 18 years old. And I had to learn all over again, how to tear down those walls and, and understand that it's okay to talk to people. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to tell people that you're hurting and that you need help. It's okay to tell people I'm in a mood today. I'm having a hard time today. And I think that I I just can't harp on that enough. The importance of letting down those walls and opening up and understanding that it's okay to talk to people. It's, it's a toxic mindset to think that if you're not a veteran, I don't want to talk to you. You're not going to understand. Maybe they're not going to understand, but make no mistake. You need to talk. You need to talk to them and you need to listen. I could keep harping on that, but I'm going to stop. I think you're picking up how important that is. Yeah. It just reinforces the point about vulnerability as well, whether that's a transitioning veteran and, and needing community and mental health support, but also just anyone in terms of just sharing some of the stressors that we've experienced. Obviously the last year and a half have have brought so many stressors for people. I had, you know, a person that I, I respect a lot said, Hey, we're, we're all in the same storm. We're just in different boats, which I think is a great way to, to, to capture the experience of the last 18 months or so. Absolutely. I mean, we were pre COVID, we were already trying to figure out how to attack the problem of veteran suicide. Pre COVID veteran suicide rates had already reached, you know, a, a point of veterans killing themselves 21, 22 a day. 22 human beings taking their lives every day. And COVID just made that worse. A lot of people don't know, but veteran suicide increased by almost 20% during the COVID-19 pandemic because you had all these veterans that were already dealing with mental isolation, trying to figure out how to open themselves up and ask for help again. But now we put them in a position to where you can't even rely on the ability to lean on your brothers and sisters that you know understand you because you can't spend time with them. Now you're stuck in a house in your own head, uh, swimming in in that that fear, uncertainty, and doubt and pain that you're already dealing with. It just exacerbated the problem big time. So yeah, it's it, it's it's a problem that that we're still trying to figure out how to fix, and COVID nineteen made it worse. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love just to, to ask you about the transition, another transition from getting bullied to, to being the big guy, to being the military, now into entrepreneurship. What was that spark? How did you get into entrepreneurship and especially technology? Sure. So I, I always knew that I wanted to go into entrepreneurship. My plan was to transition out of the SEAL teams and over to the FBI. 
my plan was to work for the FBI for five, 10 years, just gain another five, 10 years of experience, but in the federal law enforcement community. And then I was going to move on and, and start a company. I was interested in starting a personnel recovery company because kidnap and ransom is something that is near and dear to my heart. But I was just planning to go over to the FBI and get some more experience prior to doing that. And at the end of my naval career, prior to retiring, I got into Marshall Business School up at USC and got to USC and just really started drinking that entrepreneurship Kool-Aid. I mean, there is, Marshall Business School is just the entire atmosphere is entrepreneurship. And in December of 2015, the Inland Regional Center in San Bernardino, California, experienced that active shooter scenario, killed, I think, 14 people at their holiday Christmas party, injured another 22. And, and after that happened, like a couple of weeks after that happened, a bunch of my friends and my wife's colleagues from the medical community were reaching out to me personally saying, hey, Ty, we're scared. This hospital or this clinic isn't providing us with any training. There are no programs in place. We have no idea what to do in the event someone comes in here and tries to hurt us or the patients. And you are literally the only person that we know that understands this kind of thing. So will you come and talk to us about how we stay safe? And after doing that several times, as you could imagine, it got to the point where I could hear my entrepreneurship professors in the back of my head saying, hey, the market is telling you what it needs from someone with your skill set. And so I sat down one weekend and started working on a business model canvas because that happened to be what I was learning in grad school at the time. And, and I decided to just take the leap. I'm a gambler. I'm a risk taker by nature, as, as you can guess. And I just decided I'm going to jump. I'm going to go for it. I think I can do this. And so I stood up Vigilance Risk Solutions the predecessor to ComSafe AI. And we started out as a tech-enabled security consultancy, immediately addressing the active shooter threat and quickly expanding into physical security as a whole. And so we were working for some pretty big companies and building their security assessments. We were building their emergency plans. We were providing them with in-person and web-based training around physical security topics like active shooter all the way out through enterprise travel risk management. We started further tech enabling the company a few years in uh, by you know, doing social media threat monitoring for our customers. We ended up building a proprietary case management platform for our customers to use so that they could actually track these, these instances when they took place so that they could learn from them and figure out how do we get ahead of them in the future. And coming into 2020, we were coming off of a record-breaking year. 2019, we experienced nearly 900% revenue growth in that one year. And then COVID started rearing its ugly head around end of December, early January, and we saw the writing on the wall. We knew it was going to destroy our business model with the shift to work from home. And fortunately, around early December, and as the result of a brainstorming session that we knew was crazy, but we allowed ourselves to go down a rabbit hole anyway, we discovered ComSafe AI. And that was because we were always trying to figure out how do we get ahead of these situations? All these big companies have the same problems. They all revolve around human beings, and all of them are simply responding to bad things that have already happened. Human beings have already been hurt. The company is already losing money. It's already losing time and talent. How do we prevent these bad things from happening? And so 
in this brainstorming session, you had retired Navy SEALs, retired Green Berets, Secret Service agents, FBI agents, really smart and experienced people. And so we allowed ourselves to go down the rabbit hole of a conversation around, hey, what would it look like if we could predict and prevent an active shooter scenario from ever manifesting? Let's work backwards from all of these publicly available situations and let's start finding the commonalities across all of these these events. Same thing with sexual assault. What would it look like if we could predict and prevent a woman from ever being assaulted based on the variables that are in play based off the data that's that's publicly available to us? And after running through case study after case study after case study, we found that the commonality that we just kept coming back to was toxic communication. These instances start with toxic communication. They develop into toxic intent and then toxic behavior. And so we felt strongly that, well, if we can capture the toxic communication at the very beginning, maybe we can prevent some of these scenarios from expanding and then getting to a point where they're, they're just ending in catastrophe. And that's how we came up with the idea for CalmSafe AI. And so by the time April, May 2020 rolled around, I was already deep in product discovery, customer discovery around this idea. I had already interviewed 50, 60 chief human resource officers and general counsels of large enterprises that had greater than 3,000 employees because we were at least smart enough to know that, like, who cares what we think? We need to know what customers think. We need to know what the market thinks about this idea. And so after doing so many of those interviews and gathering market data, we knew that this idea had legs to it. In fact, it could be very timely considering the changes we were seeing to the future of work, the shift to work from home. And so we decided to abandon our consulting practices and rebrand the company around this idea, bring an engineering team in-house and build a minimum viable product. And so that's what we did. And we are now CompSafe AI. What a just a great example of a pivot, but just in an unfortunate time, and you could have just run away from it and just put your head in the sand and said, no, we're just going to continue forward, but you saw a much bigger opportunity. What was it like? How did you actually make that pivot? Or it's more of an evolution, really, it sounds like, but what was what were some of the mindsets and things you had to do to, to be successful with that? Believe it or not, Darren, the market made it very easy for us to make that decision in a couple of ways. First and foremost, we quickly realized we didn't have a choice. You know, all of those founders out there that were just very much so in love with their idea and, and just refusing to change, those companies are now closed. They didn't survive the pandemic. So we didn't have a choice. We had to find another way or the company was going to die. The other thing that made it very easy for us to, to make that transition was all of the data we gathered from the market. If we were just relying on our own ideas and going, oh yeah, I think this is going to be a great idea and it's going to work. I would have been very uncomfortable about making the decision to totally abandon the former business model. But it was because we had spoken with so many customers and gotten so much information from these big companies regarding 
how this product should be built, what features should be built into the product, when should those features be built into the product, how do we price the product, how should the product look and feel, how do customers want to interact with the dashboard, what should the dashboard look like. The market literally gave us all of those answers. And so believe it or not, it made the decision really easy for me because I felt like we're not making this decision on our own. The market's making this decision for us. It's just our responsibility now to take all of that data and figure out exactly the steps we have to take in order to evolve into ComSafe AI. Because you're right, it, I don't consider it a pivot. I consider it an evolution because we're still attacking the same problem. We've just figured out a bigger, better, faster, stronger way to attack the problem and actually win and solve the problem. In the media, you hear all these stories, obviously, active shooters, sexual assault, harassment, bullying. How big of a problem is it? Obviously, you had a chance to talk to all these heads of HRs. Just talk to me about some of the data and some of the things that you're seeing in terms of how pervasive that really is. Absolutely. It's a massive problem. So a lot of people don't, don't know that toxic communication, conflict and violence in the workplace, and I'm talking instances of sexual harassment, racial discrimination, bullying employees committing suicide, all of the above, it costs U.S. businesses $528 billion every year in lost expenses and revenue. $528 billion a year is what it's costing U.S. businesses alone. That We aren't even thinking about global scale, just U.S. businesses. And in the wake of these instances, an employee's productivity decreases by up to 50% and for up to 18 weeks post-incident. So when a company is trying to figure out, well, how is this problem hurting my bottom line? I just gave you the answer. If your employee that you are paying to show probably a really generous salary if you're paying that person to show up every day and bring their A game every day so they're contributing to achieving the overall strategic goals of the organization, but that employee is only firing at 50% of their ability, then you're losing money on that employee. That employee isn't producing the results that you are expecting of that employee, and it's not the employee's fault. So these numbers add up really, really fast, and they hurt the organization. Take a look at Google. Google is currently paying employees a settlement of $310 million as a result of sexual harassment. Microsoft is currently battling a sexual harassment and racial discrimination lawsuit. Even the city of Los Angeles just recently paid employees a settlement of $36 million as a result of sexual harassment. So yeah, this is a really, really costly problem. And unfortunately, it's getting worse as a result of the pandemic and the changes to the future of work. We were talking about some of those changes earlier that's causing people to have poor mental hygiene, poor mental health that isolation. So over the last 18 months, we've seen a massive spike in gun sales in the United States of America, record-breaking gun sales. We've seen a massive spike in the sale of ghost gun parts, which means that there's individuals out there piecemealing together firearms that are totally untraceable by law enforcement. And when I consider the siege on our nation's capital several months back, that particular variable scares the daylights out of me. 
But we've also seen a massive spike in cyberbullying, cybersexual harassment, cyberstalking, child abuse, domestic violence, homegrown terror. All of the above have skyrocketed as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we have to keep in mind that as we reopen the workplace in the near future, even if it's at limited capacity, make no mistake, some of these variables are going to find their way back into the workplace. We're not just going to bring employees back to work and all of a sudden it's going to be kumbaya and all of that racial tension that we experienced over the last 18 months, it's going to stay out of the workplace. All of that political tension and drama that we experienced with this last election is just going to stay outside of the workplace. All of the, the xenophobia, the fear of, is it even okay to embrace my colleague that I haven't seen in person in months, and in some cases, a year, that that discomfort? We can't just assume that it's going to stay outside of the walls of the workplace. And so we have to figure out how we're going to get ahead of those things, because make no mistake, the problem is growing and it's growing fast. Absolutely. It's like COVID was just like more fuel on the fire, problems that were already there. They were maybe invisible in some sense, but now they're really front and center and we're all taking those things on head on. Without a doubt. So talk to me about what are some of the mitigation measures that ComSafe AI can really help? Obviously it starts with toxic communication, but it unfolds beyond that. And the impacts are just really detrimental just at an individual team, but also organizational level. So how does ComSafe AI really help in that capacity? Sure. ComSafe AI helps because it's an internal communication safety analysis software that automatically finds instances of toxic communication like sexual harassment, bullying, racial discrimination. When those instances take place over company email or chat services, so even if the company is using Slack or Microsoft Teams, Our solution will automatically find those instances and send a real-time SMS or email alert to the cell phone of the human resource, the human resources managers and decision makers at that organization that are responsible for those employees. And it lets them know, hey, this is happening in real time and you need to get a human being involved immediately to start mitigating risk around this scenario instead of just sitting on it and Fast forward six months from now, and the organization is trying to figure out why did Sarah quit and why is she now suing us for sexual harassment? Does anyone know what's going on? So companies don't have to worry about those hidden liabilities within their email and and chat communications anymore because ComSafe AI is going to go out and find those instances for them and alert them in real time. And ComSafe AI also has the ability to look at that data retroactively in the event something happened in the company's past and they're afraid of it becoming a liability. They can use this solution to now discover those instances so that they can start mitigating risk around them proactively. In addition to the the technology mitigation measures, what advice do you have in terms of what leaders should be doing from an analog perspective in terms of how to head this stuff off of the past in terms of toxic communication, sexual harassment, all those different things? Talk to your employees. Employees have to understand that these are initiatives that are starting at the top. This is a part of the culture at an organization. Sexual harassment becomes a part of the culture. Racial discrimination becomes a part of the culture. And the CEO of the organization is responsible for the culture at that organization. So organizational leadership, they have to be public about 
their disdain and dislike for sexual harassment and racial discrimination and bullying and all of these other instances of toxic behavior and communication that take place within the organization. And organizational leadership, they have to be public to the point where they are not afraid to go out and engage consultants that can come in and help to improve the culture of the organization. They're not afraid to go out and engage technological solutions like ComSafe AI that allow them to get ahead of these situations. And they shouldn't be afraid to be upfront and honest with employees and let employees know that they are using these types of solutions so that they can stay ahead of these situations and tell employees why they're using these solutions. Let them know that, hey, we're not using this to spy on you. That's not how this solution was built. We can't use it that way anyway because of how the solution was built. We're using this because we love you and we care about you and you are not simply a means to our financial ends. We want to make sure that you are safe and we want to take proactive measures in making sure that you're safe. Organizational leadership, leaders in general would be surprised how forthcoming how hardworking employees will be if they know without a doubt, my leadership actually cares about me. I'm not just another number. To, I'm not just another employee cruising around the campus. They actually care about me and my well-being, and they want to ensure that I'm growing as a human being even beyond the organization, going back to that servant leadership. Yeah, something you mentioned in terms of empathy and communication, I came across a, something you wrote in terms of communicating more, not less. And I thought something that was interesting you said was, don't leave your tribe to the mercy of the scary and readily available misinformation, which I thought was pretty interesting. 100%. You know, I, I have been accused on several uh, situations of being too honest with my employees, being too honest with my investors. And, and I've been given the advice of, well, maybe you shouldn't be so honest with them. And that's just not me. Again, I'm going to give you the good, the bad, the ugly, even if my voice is shaking while I'm doing it. I believe in more communication rather than less communication. And I learned that on the battlefield because when you're in combat, if you aren't communicating correctly with other forces that are in play, partner forces that are in a firefight less than 500 yards from you, if you're not practicing proper communication with the aircraft that are flying above you, that are potentially dropping bombs on the battlefield in order to help support you or save you, uh, when you need them the most, good people die. The wrong people die. And so I, I pulled that practice into entrepreneurship. And again, I, I would rather give my investors and my employees more information than less information so that they always know what's going on. If there's ever a time in my company where we're making moves to go this way and, and there's employees over here, and it doesn't matter what their titles are, even if they're lower level employees, if they raise their hand and go, I had no idea we were doing that. I'm wrong. My team isn't wrong. The manager responsible for that re employee isn't wrong. I, the CEO, I am wrong because we should all be on the same page at all times. So yeah, I believe in open, 
honest communications, communicate often with your team. So I know you're just getting started in your technology career and entrepreneurship, but looking back, like what's a big lesson you've learned just in terms of that wild ride in terms of being a tech entrepreneur? Oh my gosh, how much time you got? (laughs) There's been so many. First and foremost, never make decisions alone. I had to learn that the hard way. I learned it the hard way in, in that one example is that when we were growing really quickly within the first couple of years of the company, I was still making unilateral decisions. I was and I'm still wearing multiple hats, but back then I was I was wearing all of the hats, right? And I was making decisions like, hey, I need to grow the team in order to keep up with all of these contracts that we're signing right now. And my common sense was telling me that, yeah, that's the right thing to do. We got more work. We need to grow the team. And I wasn't considering the difference between annual recurring revenue and lumpy revenue that service businesses tend to to generate lumpy revenue. I can't count on it. Whereas annual recurring revenue, I'm signing a three-year deal with you. It's going to be X amount of dollars each year. I can count on that revenue. At least I should be able to count on that revenue for the next several years. And I wasn't taking that difference into consideration. And so we got to a point where we were doing really well. We had grown the team. And then all of a sudden, some of those three-month contracts, those six-month contracts, they were coming to an end. And I didn't have revenue to replace those contracts. And so I got to a point where I found myself with a robust team and we were paying those employees, but I, my revenue that was coming in was, was shrinking. And so I was burning money. And it got to the point where you know I almost ran out of money simply because I was making decisions on my own instead of relying on really smart people that are around me that, that I could have gone to and went, hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing. What are your thoughts? What do you think? So never make decisions alone. It's, it's to the point now where I don't make any decisions on my own. I don't care how smart I think I am. I have a brilliant co-founder. I have a brilliant chief technology officer. My board is world-class. I would be an idiot to make a single decision without consulting those people that have been there and done that. And that can go, Hey, Ty, that's a great idea, but just think about these three things. Let me open up your, your aperture a little bit. So that is, uh, in my opinion, that was, that has been the biggest lesson that I've learned as the CEO. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to walk around pretending like you know everything. Like, yeah, you better know the stuff you're supposed to know, like vision and strategy, hiring a good team, fundraising and selling. Those are your roles as the CEO of a technology company. But even within those lanes, you still don't have to know everything because thinking that you know everything, it's going to get you in trouble fast. So I, I like to harp on that a lot. When people come to me and they ask me for my advice regarding a business they're thinking about starting, I try to say, I I tell them I I burned a lot of time and money in the beginning by making mistakes that could have easily been avoided had I just asked people for advice. Another thing that is really important is culture. We've been talking about culture. The CEO sets the culture in the company. Okay. I would tell young SEALs all the time. When you are 
the leaders of a SEAL platoon. Because remember, our culture is so strong. It, it, it grabs a hold of you and, and you become that culture. When you are the leaders of a SEAL platoon, your behavior is so important because eventually all of the boys in that platoon are going to begin to emulate the behavior of the leaders of that platoon. So if the platoon chief and the platoon OIC, the officer in charge, if they're rascals, if they're cowboys, if they're lacking in military bearing, if they're arrogant, the rest of the platoon is going to start to behave that way as well. And the result of that is going to be poor. So when you're the leader of an organization, it's the same. Even if it's a technology company, you set the standard, you set the behavior, you control the energy that makes up the culture within that company. And so that's something that I always try to keep in mind. Hey, Ty, how are you interacting with your employees? How are you talking to them? How are you treating them? Are you taking the time to figure out, hey, what's going on in your personal life? Anything that we can help you with? What You seem kind of down today. What's going on? Wait, wait a minute. What are you dealing with? Why are you at work today? Go home. Call us and let us know how we can support you. If you're not constantly figuring out, how am I growing these people around me? How am I doing the opposite of treating them like they're simply a means to my financial end? Then again, I'm doing leadership the wrong way. So culture is very, very important. And that's something that I am actively paying attention to all day, every day, especially while we're small. And I have the ability to do that because someday we're going to have 50 employees and it's going to be really difficult for me to you know, spend time with all of those people and really allow them to bask in my energy so that they understand this is how I feel about each one of you. And I'm always going to be there for you. And, and this is the culture that we want to build within this business. When we get bigger, it's going to be harder to do that. So I'm paying a lot of attention to that right now. And what a great example of leading by example, but also just ownership of how your examples, your behaviors are so critical in terms of shaping the culture. A hundred percent. And and so I purposely spend time outside of work with my employees. I go to happy hour with them. I, I go play golf with them. It's important for them to see how I interact with other human beings. It's important for them to see how the CEO interacts with the waiter at a restaurant that we're at. That's really, really important. I've experienced, and this was a part of my culture shock when I transitioned from the military into the civilian world, into life as a technology entrepreneur. I was really shocked in experiencing the behavior of some people that I thought I was supposed to look up to. I found myself rubbing elbows with other CEOs of, of much larger companies, multi-billion dollar businesses. You know, these are people that are very wealthy and powerful individuals. And I found myself being quickly turned off by them. I found myself in situations where I would sit back and watch and listen. And I found myself thinking, oh my gosh, I would never treat my employees that way. I would never talk to other human beings that way. I don't understand why people even want to work for this person. No wonder they need our help. No wonder the, the culture within this company is just all jacked up because again, the pace is set by the CEO. 
Uh, and that was culture shocking for me because I was coming out of a community where, again, servant leadership is very, very important. As a leader, if you make poor decisions. The result are your friends dying, literally dying. So that was really hard for me to deal with. And, and it was a lesson that I held on to. And again, I learned from that even because, because I, I, I was given examples as to how I would not lead once ComSafe AI becomes this massively financially successful company. I'm never going to allow that to go to my head. I'm never going to allow myself to set poor examples for my employees simply because I'm, I'm a financially wealthy person. So yeah, that's, that's really important to me. Hey, always stay grounded. Just what a great principle in life, regardless of your success or your stature. Humility will take you a very long way. So what's next for ComSafe AI? What's next for Ty? I'm really excited. Uh, we're in the process of closing our second financing round right now. We're closing our first equity round. So taking on a lot more venture capital to fuel us through this go-to-market with ServiceNow. We partnered with ServiceNow uh, a few months ago, and we're really excited about that because ServiceNow is just a monstrous, incredible company that's being led by incredible people. And I'm, I'm really blessed to have a, a partnership with a company like that that has the ability to help us grow to scale very rapidly. So my five and 10 meter targets are closing this financing round so that we're ready to keep up with the massive growth that I think is coming our way uh, as a result of our partnership with ServiceNow. And then taking our solution live in the ServiceNow marketplace over the next 30 days or so. Those are the two milestones that I'm, I'm hyper-focused on right now. We're also growing the engineering team ahead of that go-to-market. We just hired Tony Daggett, a brilliant data scientist, what last week, and we're actively looking to add a senior software architect to the team right now. We're also growing the sales team right now. So we are in, a, in hyper growth mode and I'm having a lot of fun with it and just trying to keep up as best I can. Where can people go to find out more about ComSafe AI, maybe even look into some of those job postings? Sure. Check out our website at www.comsafe.ai. Also, check me out on LinkedIn. I'm a pretty public CEO on, on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm posting, you know, sometimes daily, uh, and I'm and I'm open to communication. So when people reach out to me on LinkedIn, I try to respond in a timely manner. Fantastic. Well, Ty, thanks so much for the wealth of information and inspiration. Frankly, so I appreciate your time coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I had a good time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks and see you all in the next episode.